Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the US midterm elections and how they might impact digital policy in Europe. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Tyson Barker, the Head of Technology and Global Affairs Program at the German Council of Foreign Relations. Hello, Tyson. Hi. So the U.S. midterm elections are obviously very important in terms of our relations with the the U.S. and uh, they will be very consequential in terms of what the Biden administration can achieve. Can you provide us an, an overview on the results of these midterm elections for those that haven't been following this uh, closely? Sure. Uh, well, let's start with some some high level stuff. I mean, uh, generally, uh, President Biden came out the day after the elections and said that this was a good day for democracy. And I think that there are a couple of reasons that this election in particular has had a, an important role in restoring some degree of faith, not only in democracy in the United States, but perhaps uh, in the world and Europe's perception of democracy in the United States. First of all, we have turnout, midterm turnout, that looks like it's going to be higher than 2018, um, over 51% voter turnout, which is quite high, um, especially high levels of turnout among uh, Gen Z voters and voters under 29. So so that shows that uh, the people are taking the time, even given new voting restrictions to to take part in the process. Second, uh, the uh, U.S. cybersecurity agency, CISA, uh, was able to report with high confidence that the election took place uh, without uh, meaningful anomalies, that the cyber integrity of the election was, was strong and robust. And we've seen that reflected in general confidence in uh, the election integrity itself. Now, there have been a couple of incidents um, localized incidents, particularly in Maricopa County in, in Arizona, where there were some voting machine errors. But generally, by and large, um, the, uh, the administration of the election was seemed to be highly professional and neutral and uh, gave more confidence in, in general voting. Third, you know, on issues, uh, there were a lot of issues that drove people to the polls, be it inflation, be it uh, uh, crime, be it some of these other broad issues. But the issue of democracy itself, which has obviously a digital component, uh, also played a role. And I think that that's where you saw voters surprisingly turn out uh, more uh, to vote down candidates that were seen as as potential underminers of the electoral process in the future, particularly at the state level with secretaries of state. Um, Now, the general outcome at the federal level uh, was mixed. Um, The U.S. remains an evenly divided uh, country. Uh, We see that the House of Representatives, the lower chamber, looks like it's going to be held narrowly by the Republicans uh, and that the Senate will remain narrowly in the hands of the Democrats. 
uh, Democratic losses in the House were less than expected, and they looked to perhaps gain or hold the same number of seats in the Senate. Um, and the Democrats gained uh, a number of um, governor's races as well. Um, so generally, it's going to, um, in Washington itself, it's going to clearly constrain the Biden administration slightly uh, because, you know, there won't be unified control of government in democratic hands. So you won't see the same kind of legislative agenda that we've seen over the past two years. But there's also a pretty clear mandate for good governance, for, uh, you know, potential uh, risk focusing on democracy, focusing on the economy. So there's also potential for, for work together. What are the likely consequences of having a divided Congress for Europe, especially in terms of uh, digital policy? Well, if you look at the agenda that the Biden administration has had over the past uh, two years, uh, it has been there has been a heavy legislative agenda. We've had an infrastructure bill that was, uh, you know, 1.6 trillion. We've had a COVID relief bill. We had the Inflation Reduction Act, which included uh, raising minimum corporate tax rates uh, in line with the OECD agreement. We've had uh, a number of pieces of legislative, uh, the CHIPS Act, uh, the 52 billion apportioned for um, industrial policy around chips and science. So there has been a lot of work uh, in Congress, you know, the traditional branch of legislation to push things through. Uh, that will be narrowed, that window, uh, in the next Congress, and that will have an impact on U.S. digital policy generally. Um, what we didn't see is the kind of, we saw a lot of ambition and aspiration in Washington around some tech regulatory areas that Europe has been moving forward on, be it in, uh, you know, algorithmic accountability, be it in a federal data protection law, be it around uh, the market power of online platforms, specifically this uh, bill that uh, Senator Klobuchar and Senator Grassley have supported that would ban self-preferencing, an element of the DMA, uh, be it around reforms to Section 230 to address uh content moderation requirements, you know, following in some of the uh, the elements of the DSA, um, the window for that kind of action is going to be very, very narrow. Um, it already was, you know, the only major tech legislation that passed that was explicitly tech focused was the Chips and Science Act in the summer. Um, and even that had been pared down from a larger bill. Um, and so some of these legislative ambitions are going to shift focus in Washington from Congress to the administration, to the Biden administration, and in particular to the regulatory agencies, and specifically the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC. Indeed, uh, as you say, uh, that wouldn't be... Uh... The, it was already narrow, uh, the margin of maneuver of the Biden administration. So uh, that will increasingly uh, be the case. Do you see any of the legislation uh, that you mentioned uh, likely to receive uh, bipartisan support in the Congress? Well, uh, just to first mention that we have in this Congress, so the one where the Democrats have control of both the House and Senate, 
there are 25 legislative days remaining at the point of, of us talking. Um, and there's a massive agenda. Uh, they have to get through a, a budget uh, by December 16th because that's when the budget runs out. They have to get through um, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the big appropriations for the U.S. Uh, US defense, which is passed annually. It's a must-pass bill and tends to actually include a lot of tech aspects. And then there's a desire to get through uh, some uh, electoral reform, something called the Electoral Count Act, a very small but very significant uh, means of, of the way that uh, elections are certified to avoid the issues that we had around January 6th, uh, confirmation of judges, codifying marriage equality, and perhaps moving on the debt ceiling. So what that means essentially is it crowds out the space for moving on things like uh, the Klobuchar bill, uh, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which is is a big piece of legislation that that some are looking at, or federal data privacy legislation. Um, so I don't see that happening in this Congress and the next Congress, where Republicans are likely to control the House, makes it even more difficult. Now, one area that uh, that both Republicans and Democrats seem to be honing in on a little bit is, is the area of privacy around health data. So uh, in the United States, you know, as it currently stands, there are a couple of trends on data protection and privacy. One is that the kind of comprehensive legislation that you have in Europe to protect personal data is taking place not at the federal level, but at the state level. And the second is that to the extent that there are federal data protection areas, they tend to be sector specific. So uh, areas like financial data or health data. And there is a general consensus that the health data protections need an update for the digital age. You know, we've got things like geolocation, pregnancy apps, Fitbits, all uh, recording a great num uh, amount of data. And that is not necessarily protected data uh, under the current laws, which were created in the 90s. So there is talk about kind of updating health data that has become a very acute concern for Democrats in particular because of the Dobbs decision, uh, the, uh, the decision to strike down Roe versus Wade and the move by some states to uh, make abortion illegal. Um, but that would be an area that the Democrats in particular be wanting to pursue. But Republicans as well are looking at, you know, how do you update uh, questions around around data protection for health data? So that's something we could see in Congress in the in the next in the next session. Another area I think that we'll see some bipartisan consensus is a little more geopolitical is around um, technology access and control. So more reviews, more pushing for robust um, uh, FDI screening, trying to push CFIUS to be more uh, active. We already see calls in Congress for a CFIUS review of Twitter's acquisition, the leverage buyout uh, by uh, Elon Musk because of the $1.9 billion um, that Musk received from uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, Kingdom holding company and what that could mean for U.S. security. Uh, we could see more efforts to uh, restrict uh, strategic export controls, uh, and I think that that was one of the motivating factors in the Biden administration's 
October 7th decision to expand um, export uh, controls on uh, chip designs for A100 and H100 graphic processing units to China, uh, which are very much involved in high-performance computing and artificial intelligence, as well as the restriction on U.S. nationals working on the installation and maintenance of uh, DUV equipment, a key uh, equipment um uh, element in the production of chips uh, in China and globally. We could see more efforts in that area. We could also see a new bipartisan push to create outbound investment screening. Um, we could see a greater examination, uh, perhaps with legislation on areas around trustworthy vendors for critical infrastructure uh, in areas like smart cities. And, and uh, you know, a lot more oversight into uh, data flows globally, particularly to China with regard to TikTok. Um, indeed, uh, uh, Biden's administration's uh, approach to China has been an element of continuity with the Trump administration. And what we are seeing now are also these uh, sort of unilateral pushes uh, with uh, export control measures aimed at crippling the uh, Chinese technologies. Um, and putting pressure also on Europe um, to to follow that. What what will be the effects of um, this uh, continuous pressure on Europe? We're in a point where uh, President Biden himself is meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the newly appointed Xi Jinping in uh, Indonesia. Um, China is and remains a reality uh, for the United States and Europe, both as a market and as a source of goods and services. Um, the strategic competition framework is at the heart of or is a, is, is a, is a solid element foundation of uh, the U.S. national security strategy that was released last month. Um, and, you know, clearly the technology dimension is, is a big part of it. Now, there are some areas where the U.S. has greater leverage, for example, in semiconductors, where the IP, the intellectual property, is largely held by the United States, and they have been kind of dusting off or uh, using new instruments or instruments in a new way, and some of that was developed in the Trump administration, uh, to restrict uh, access to the, that special, special uh, intellectual property, not only directly, but indirectly with knock-on effects for Europe. Um, but in other areas like artificial intelligence, you know, China is in, in some ways the kind of leading incubator for a lot of IP. So, so there are still, there are still a lot of questions. Now, for, for Europe, uh, there are a plurality of views on how to best approach China. And you have some very hawkish states that are much more in line or maybe even more strident than, than the United States, states like Lithuania. And then that spans the gamut all the way to, uh, to a, a country like Hungary, that is much more accommodationist and is, of course, the headquarters of Huawei in, in Europe and, you know, is attempting to really ingratiate itself to, to, 
the Chinese government uh, and the CCP. Then in the middle, you have states like Germany, which is, you know, balancing a number of, of interests and equities, specifically, you know, when they're looking at the rise of gas costs as a factor of production, the impact that that will have on Germany's industrial base, which is increasingly an innovation industrial base, um, and the need to to preserve markets in order to create stabilizers for the German and European economy. Uh, you know, China plays a big role in that. So they are nervous that uh, that that Europe might get caught between a an intense competition between the U.S. And China, and you know that is that is an element, uh, a dynamic that is playing out in forum like the Trade and Technology Council. And before we go back to the TTC, um, it seems to me that uh, with such a polarized Congress, uh, it was much easier for uh, the Biden administration to get public uh, subsidies uh, through than uh, the legislation that we have uh, mentioned before. Uh, and that, the, the CHIPS Act is a primary example of that. Uh, how concrete do you think is the risk of a subsidy race uh, between the U.S. and Europe? I think that the the risk is is mixed um, on the issue of semiconductors in particular, um, and this is really a um, an endorsement of the design of the Trade and Technology Council. Both sides have been very assiduous in preemptively trying to communicate with each other, uh, creating transparency in where uh, subsidies would be applied, uh, state aid, and how there needs to be complementarity. And that complementarity in state aid does two things. One, it avoids uh, companies like Intel playing one side or TSMC playing one side off of the other which is very important because that is clearly a dynamic that is in their interest, but it's not in the interest of the German, uh, European, American taxpayer, for example. And the other is it, it creates a, a strategic interdependence between the United States and Europe. You know, it says that if we create complementarity in where we're directing state aid, this is going to graft our two chips ecosystems more closely together. And that is, of course, a an important element for the future of uh, U.S.-European relations working together on, on tech policy. Now, the one area where it hasn't necessarily worked, and of course, this is uh, the elephant in the room in the double helix that makes up trade and technology policy, is on the Inflation Reduction Act's uh, nine provisions uh, that support, you know, uh, rules of origin content, indigenous content requirements within the United States for tax credits. So, you know, the commission has been very clear about the tax credit provisions on renewables, energy, sustainable aviation, clean hydrogen, uh, advanced manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. And that that will have a cumulative market distortion effect that sucks production out of Europe, um, you know, to support uh, artificially uh, domestic production within the United States. And the area they've been most clear on this is in the area of electric vehicles. And, you know, I think Europe has a great point on this. 
Um, if you listen to the Biden administration, while they recognize that Congress is the one that drafted this law and not the administration, and we have to say that this was drafted by Democrats, uh, specifically uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, uh, you know, they really said we want to produce here. And that was and continues to be a real stumbling block for closer U.S.-European ties. That's one of the reasons that the uh, top officials within the TTC got together and launched a task force uh, to address this issue, which they're supposed to an IRA task force and, uh, you know, an Inflation Reduction Act task force. Um, that is supposed to lay out potential options by November 25th. Um, but, you know, I think that the commission sees the model that has worked in around Privacy Shield, specifically around the October 7th announcement of the data protection framework and what happened in, um, in March, you know, that the U.S. And, and Europe at the top level uh, with President Biden and President von der Leyen saying we have an agreement in principle to get something done. I think that they see that the commission sees that agreement uh, in principle model as something that needs to be applied to the IRA subsidy dispute. And we'll see where that comes down. But there's definitely a willingness of the U.S. to engage with with Brussels on that. Yeah, well, w whether the Privacy Shield uh, 2.0 will be a success, uh, perhaps it's a bit too early to tell, but indeed um, the dedication of the Biden administration on this was um, was a non not questionable. Uh, but what can we expect from this task force and more broadly from the next uh, TTC meeting when, you know, Europe's closest trading partner is subsidizing its own industry at the detriment of its allies. The formulation of um, tax credits within uh, the Inflation Reduction Act will cause frictions not only with its allies, with the U.S. allies in Europe, but also with South Korea and others. And that is a real unfortunate element in this era of geostrategic competition where Everybody recognized that A, we need to do way more on climate change, and B, we need to work much more closely together uh, to set global rules that reinforce things like openness. So um, it's going to be it's going to be a tough battle. I will say that the TTC, I I, I say that one of the the clever aspects of the TTC design is that it created something I call the TTC ecosystem. That not everything that is important uh, in the cross section of the TTC needs to actually be discussed within the TTC itself. So some of these really, really hard irritants like Privacy Shield or like uh, the EV subsidies um, get spun off into TTC adjacent conversations. The same thing happened with the Digital Markets Act um, that you don't want to sink the TTC ship with too much ballast of irritants. You want to focus on the positive agenda uh, or the agenda where, where you can really move the ball forward. And of course, we've seen that with dual-use export controls, uh, broad, broad dual-use export controls specifically on semiconductors with regard to Russia, uh, which is, I would say, 
one of the key and least uh, understood factors in Russia's um, the degradation of Russia's military and economy. I mean, this is affecting everything from, um, you know, its its ability to uh, buy drones, to civil aviation, to its automotive industry, to its cloud computing industry, to things like refrigerators and and basic manufacturing. So this is this has really had a massive impact, and and it's not as understood as it should be. Looking toward uh, the the third TTC meeting, which will take place in the lame duck, it will be in in Washington D.C. on December fifth, or around Washington D.C. on December fifth. Uh, you know there are some areas that I think that we can see new focus. Uh, I would even say maybe the TTC is going global a little bit. Um, you know we are thinking about the U.S. and Europe greater oper- operationalization of. Um, global gateway of the uh, partnership for global infrastructure and investment. And I think that both sides are going to be looking to put into practice the ICT uh, principles of trustworthiness that they agreed to at the last meeting with some concrete projects on things like broadband and smart city, perhaps in Jamaica or broader digitalization, digital modernization in a country like Kenya, for example. Um, I think that they will also be looking at areas uh, where the geopolitics and tech uh, intersect in areas like internet shutdown, um, both in conflict zones, you know, on the line of conflict uh, between Ukraine and Russia on Ukrainian territory, but also in a country like Iran, where, uh, you know, the government has used internet shutdowns to try to uh, stifle uh, legitimate protest uh, against the authoritarian regime there. And, you know, what are the tools that could be at, at the U.S. and Europe's disposal, both in the form of connectivity, you know, is there a greater role for low Earth orbit satellites or VPNs or other kind of privacy affirming, uh, democracy affirming technologies? I think that will be an agenda item. Then I think they're going to try to move more closely uh, on, on AI standardization to kind of match the topography of risk uh, and risk assessment that is being pursued in the AI Act and to see how that can be reflected in a, you know, NIST guidance on, on risk management. Um, that will be another area that I think we'll see some, some work together. Um, you know, Russia and Ukraine will continue to be an agenda item. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there are a number of areas that I think we're gonna see some, some interesting progress. Um, also on the side of standardization, you know, the use of this strategic standardization information mechanism. There is some reports that uh, the U.S. and Europe have already been able to se- successfully fend off uh, the use of Chinese uh, IPv6 in a country like Rwanda by latching up, increasing their their consultation to make sure that, you know, attempts to sneak in new uh, standards in third countries are uh, consistent with an open democratic digital environment. And of course, we saw this and, you know, this doesn't get enough uh, credit, but it, it belongs to that TTC ecosystem. The uh, mutual support that the U.S. and Europe had for each other's candidates at the ITU for the role of Secretary General and Deputy Secretary General. I mean, that is the kind of 
mm, it's, it's not a breakthrough, but these are the process victories that are actually showing that the TTC is working. From what you just said, Tyson, it seems to me that there is a lot of uh, work in the TTC uh, that is effective when it's trying to confront one of um, the West uh, geopolitical rivals like Russia and China. Um, and, and that might indeed be uh, the, the intent of uh, the US when they set up the TTC. I think from, from the EU perspective, it was more to sort of... Uh, pull the US into a policy convergence. Um, so do you think that the, the European approach to it could ever prevail or will it just be a tool against rather than for building uh, something? Well, let me, let me say two things. One, if you look at the, um, the national security strategy again, that the um, that the White House released uh, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan rolled out about a month ago. Um, it is the TTC and that type of flexible geoeconomic uh, geotech arrangement is really at the heart of how the U.S. is now approaching diplomacy. Um, you have this not only in the Euro-Atlantic with the TTC, but also in the Indo-Pacific with the Quad and IPEF. So this is really kind of the model for uh, diplomacy and constructing an international system as it currently looks. For Europe, I would say you're right in that the uh, Europeans in part saw the TTC as a means of socializing greater governance convergence uh, with the United States as let's say the two most important uh, blocks uh, for, you know, democratic economic blocks in the world. Um, and honestly, I think that they've had some modicum of success. I mean, if you look at things, it's not totally TTC related. It's It also is just a function of, um, uh, you know, the way that Europe is, is outlining new principles around tech governance. So if you look at something like artificial intelligence regulation. I mean, there's there's a good deal of convergence on the issue of risk, on the issue of accountability. There's discussion about, uh, you know, liability and transparency, a lot of convergence. That doesn't mean their harmonization, of course, but there's a great deal of convergence, both in the discourse and increasingly new laws, both at the uh, state level and local level in the United States, you have laws on facial recognition, usage in law enforcement that matches some of the kind of real-time remote uh, biometric uh, assessment, uh, you know, provisions that you see in the in the AI Act. You have a what is a non-binding and doesn't have the strength of teeth, but still principally has the same. Uh, the same ideas in the AI Bill of Rights that was released by the White House in data protection and privacy, good deal of convergence uh, at the state level and this new, uh, stronger, uh, you know, data um, uh, privacy court, the data protection court that, they, that the U.S. is creating to provide redress mechanisms, the new use of the term necessity and proportionality, a European legal term that has now been adopted by the United States. And also, you know, if you look at data protection and privacy and, and its use by uh, intelligence, 
Section 702 is going to come up for reauthorization next year. So perhaps we will see even greater convergence uh, with Europe on, on some of the questions of the guardrails to protect against the abuse, disproportionate use of uh, intelligence gathering on in data. On uh, content moderation, there is enormous uh, admiration for the Digital Services Act in Washington, particularly around the provisions to provide data access to academics um, and, and the way that the DSA interacts with uh, and in, creates enforcement mechanisms for terms of service and, you know, insists on, on risk assessments for very large online platforms. Um, I think that the, the code of practice and the way that that can be instrumentalized is something that Washington is really looking closely at. And then on the DMA, you know, it's not just the Klobuchar legislation. It's also this new, you know, the new interpretation by the uh, Federal Trade Commission of its um, 1914 antitrust, you know, when the FTA was created, that it needs to actually stop monopolies before and not after they are formed. So in every area, uh, and then you have the Digital Services Act uh, issue, or excuse me, the um, uh, the uh, Digital Services Tax issue and the way that that has been addressed through the OECD uh, agreement on global uh, corporate tax. So in all these areas that used to be areas of friction between the U.S. and Europe. There's a lot of convergence. Does that mean that the friction is gone? Not at all. But there is still a lot more convergence now in 2022 than we had in 2020. Well, uh, I guess that will also be up to the next uh, presidential elections in the U.S. But let's leave it to that for now. Um, thank you, Tyson Barker, Head of Technology and Global Affairs Program at the German Council of Foreign Relations. Thank you so much. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Chiori. I'm Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. Music